Right, so back on track because that's this is actually my job and what I do. Um, so I don't do a lot about recovery after narcissistic abuse because on one hand, I still occasionally take a step backwards and, you know, fuck up, make a mistake, react really. And if you're a reactor, you're really, you are, do have an element of healing still to do. And I'm absolutely a reactor. Although I forgive myself because the amount of time and the level of pressure and abuse I've suffered while trying to recover from other types of abuse is insurmountable. I couldn't even begin to tell you. Well, I have. I've done some podcasts and I've done some YouTube videos and I've written two books which feature a lot of the content of the stalking and the harassment and the abuse that I've suffered over these years. Um, And at times, I do stop and take a breath and think, how the fudge did I even get here? Um, And to the outside world, um, I appear pretty much bang on, you know, fully, fully healed, fully recovered, living my best life and um and yeah I am in part um I mean it's difficult to explain when you've got other things going on right and I'm still got some things I've got to deal with this year that are uh, directly attributed to me reacting to abuse and eventually just going I've had enough um and Emotions have become illegal. You can't shout, you can't cry, you can't tell someone off, you can't tell the truth, you can't be cheeky, you can't be rude, you can't vent, um, you can't tell your version of events without somebody saying, that's stalking, that's harassment, that's offensive, that's abusive, that's telecommunications. And it's really, it's a fucking nightmare for people who have been through abuse who have emotion. And we're entitled to have emotion and we're entitled to tell our story. But as a result of me, sometimes going about it the wrong way or just being overwhelmed and reacting after years and years of years of not reacting um i've managed to take like i say take a few i've had to take a few steps back and that's the unhealed part of me um but i do look at my life as it is and where and more importantly actually where i'm headed i think that's a lot of people say live in the moment live your life right now and all this sort of stuff it's like you can't take your money to the grave and you know just do what you want you don't need to work and all this you know your job isn't more important than your kids and just don't work and you see all these memes that say you know uh, your kids aren't going to remember when you got paid or your payday but they'll remember you taking them to the beach and all this sort of stuff it's just nonsensical children without money without working like a trojan you know, I, I wouldn't have the money to give my kids the future that they're going to get and the, the life they've got just now. Um, I'm uh, I'm definitely not a live-in-the-moment person. I'm definitely a planner. And I think that's what's got me to a recovery point that I'm at. And I would probably say, if I had to put a number on it, I would say into, I would be about a 7 out of 10, I think. And that's really not bad, considering I've had... I have not had a free day or a... an hour of peace complete peace that the vast majority of people trying to recover from narcissistic abuse and domestic abuse have had I mean most people will have maybe the smear campaign for a period of time from their narcissist maybe a crappy relationship with their family but generally the road is clear for them to work on themselves work on the recovery and get to the point they want to get to Um, I unfortunately have been trying to recover from abuse while being abused. 
Um, so to get to seven out of 10 is pretty damn good. And I put that down to various different things that I've done, which is what this podcast is about. And this is not me endorsing or advocating or even advising. It's just because I know a lot of people have a similar personality type to me um, and probably have had similar issues with stalking and smear campaigns, mental health issues, eating disorders, uh, general anxiety disorders, all the sort of stuff that we all carry, but we don't really talk about. And I talk about it a lot. I'm very free and easy talking about not just the mistakes of my past, um, but my mental health or lack of it. Um, and my abuse experiences and day-to-day what's happening to me with the smear campaign from this female narcissist. I talk a lot about it all. I'm very open, incredibly open and authentic about it. And I would say to a certain extent that's helped my recovery. I'm not somebody that does particularly well uh, with secrets or lies. Um, I... It's, it's, my, it's just not my nature. Anybody and everybody who speaks to me will say, God, Lucy, you're an oversharer. It's probably one of my, it's actually potentially could be a toxic trait. You know, I, I overshare. I share too much of myself um, with relative strangers, um, even with loved ones and friends. It's, you know, I've got friends at the moment who are all like, you know, I shouldn't be so open. I shouldn't be so honest and communicative and, I do agree with them to a certain extent, but it's just who I am. Um, I know it's a trauma response, um, and it's also in response to being gaslighted by my parents, my narcissistic parents, and in other situations where I've been called a liar, and and I haven't been. Um, I've been called duplicitous, or been called a cheat, and I haven't been. So the, the, the sort of trauma response for me now, while I'm in a peaceful relationship with peaceful friendships, Um, is to overshare and make sure everybody knows exactly what's going on with me so I can't be accused of lying about it or omitting it because omitting something is really lying if you're asked about it and then you don't talk about it. So I think that is why I do overshare. Um, And I also share because I know that there's people who need to hear stories like mine so that they can go, thank God it's not just me. I'm not alone. I'm not a weirdo. I'm not a freak. I'm not evil, you know, because I go, I tell them my story and I explain why I did what I did or why this happened or why that happened or why I had this relationship. And they go, oh, right, that makes sense to me. I feel better now. So that's another reason why I overshare. So there's two, there's one sort of negative reason, my sort of, uh, my uh, fear of being called a liar. And then the fact that I know I help people when I'm so open, but it does, it puts me, it puts me at risk of, you know, people being abusive and nasty about stuff that I've told them or stuff that I, they've read about me or stuff that I've put in the public arena. And it's like, well, the only reason you know that is because I've told, to, you know, I've made that public. So how could I be a liar or having secrets? It doesn't make sense. But they, these people are few and far between and they're losers, right? Um, it's often projection. When someone calls you a liar, they're a liar. When someone calls you a con artist, they're a con artist. When someone picks apart and accuses you of lying about rape, they've lied about their rape. When somebody calls you a shit mum, their son's decided to live in Japan. <laughs> when someone accuses you of abusing their animals, they've abused their animals. When someone accuses you of benefit fraud, they're up at it. They're a benefit fraud. They're a liar. They're doing it right now. So um, often you'll get people calling you things, calling you a liar and saying that you're inauthentic, sitting behind a laptop with a fake account using a fake name. Boom, projection. Um, 
So I try to be as authentic and open as possible, which fills people's mouths, but it also helps a lot more people than it hinders me. And that's definitely helped my recovery. Another thing that helped my recovery, which was shocking to me at the time, was staying single for a period of time. And I'd always had codependency. I'd always believed I was only mattered. I was only relevant if I was in a relationship with somebody else and making them happy. Um, and that's classic codependency, basically. Um, and that was partly due to what the mum and my dad's marriage and just how I was brought up. Nobody ever taught me any different. And I am very empathic, very affectionate, kind and generous, and I love the company of people. So, you know, the whole codependency thing was going to be natural to me if I'd been brought up with uh, trauma and chaos and loneliness and apathy. So I, had, I just had relationship after relationship after relationship. In each one, I wanted to make the one until... I was in so much pain, I didn't want a relationship, I just wanted to use other people like I felt I'd been used my whole life, which is really a bad time, a really, really bad time, but luckily it was relatively short-lived. So then I enforced celibacy on myself, and I think it was about 18 months. Um, I didn't have relationships in that time, and I didn't look for them. Um, it was lockdown as well, so I think it was in the years running up to lockdown and then a bit of lockdown. Um, see, there you go. I explain myself because I know that there's people listening to this that want to go and unpick that, look at the dates of lockdown, and then say, no, 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 you were going out with this person, you see. So it's a trauma response for me to over-explain um, over things and give loads and loads of detail and then stutter and trying to make sure that I'm actually, I've got everything totally factually correct because I'm constantly being picked apart by this absolute whore who just seems to think that my life is her business because she doesn't have one. Um, and that's how you can explain, it's a trauma response. So I was single for about, I think it was about 18 months. Um, and I actually quite enjoyed it. So that's a really good sign that you're on the road to recovery because you enjoy your own company. You enjoy being in your own skin. Um, and you enjoy just the sound of your own voice and your own thought, you're comfortable with your own thoughts and feelings. Um, you don't need to have somebody else to distract you. You don't need to have somebody else to sort of focus on or project on or keep you busy. Um, you don't need to validate yourself by making somebody else happy because you can validate yourself because you've, like I did little things, like I started gardening and making things, doing a lot more kind of crafting and kind of DIY things. I did decorating in the house, a lot of decorating, a lot of planning the decorating, which I love doing, choosing colours, choosing fabrics, choosing wallpaper, all that sort of stuff. Um, I got a new kitchen, so I did a lot of practical things and that boosted my confidence because I thought, because I'd been in relationships for men and my mum was in that type of relationship with my dad where she, she very much gave him male roles, although she completely dominated him. So he was, he did all the man jobs, but he didn't, he wasn't allowed to think for himself or do anything that she didn't, she wasn't a part of. Um, so I had loads of relationships with men and there was always this expectation that the men would do man jobs, right? Which is really toxic. Um, and then I started doing them and I realised I was good at them. I realised I was good at building flat pack furniture and gardening and mowing the lawn. I love mowing the lawn. Um, and fixing things. I've always been good at fixing little things like crafty things like sewing and knitting and things like that. But other types of fixing like changed all my doorknobs. I've got, don't ask why, but I've got knobs on my coffee table. I think it's, somebody told me it was a DJ table because you can lift the lid 
anyway i don't know but it's got knobs on it changed all the knobs on that and did little bits of just aesthetic diy around the house did some painting got back to painting because i can paint and draw pretty good um so i reinvested in who i used to be which is artsy and crafty and outdoorsy and then I, I rebuilt parts of me that never really really were never nurtured which is the diy type stuff and the mowing the lawn the garden and things so no problems um so that was really nice i began to become up what felt like a whole person again um because if somebody said to me you know what are you good at what do you enjoy doing then i was able to answer the question and not look away and that's abusive relationships that do that to you and, and a sign of recovery is you're able to be proud of who you are you know and when you're in an abusive relationship they take away all that shit from you you know you're either what they want you to be or you're a shell because you've dropped hobbies and you've dropped things that you enjoyed doing and you've dropped things that you're good at um and you've either done it willingly because you're completely codependent or you've been abused into it and when you're in an abusive relationship and somebody looks at you and says oh what would you say you're really good at, right? You're going to be stumped because you're not allowed to be good at anything because you're in an abusive relationship because a narcissist is going to say you're bragging or you're taking the limelight or you're trying to embarrass them and all this sort of stuff, try to show off. That's the way they are. If you, if you are able to tell a nice long story about what you're good at and who you are, so, you know, that becomes bragging and, and uh, aggrandizing and grandiosity to a narcissist because they're projecting because they're fucking shite at everything and they're jealous of you. Um, so that was another thing I did. I also had grief counselling. Now, this wasn't necessarily because of the narcissistic abuse, because narcissistic abuse does does generate a grief reaction. Actually, when the relationship is over, it is you're grieving. Um, but it, it just so happened that my mother died, and because she was a narcissist, I really struggled with her death because I was missing the mum. She very, very occasionally could be, rarely. I mean, rare. I was missing the mum I should have had. I was missing the mum my brothers think they had because they they had a much more um, emotional, what I would call emotionally luxurious lifestyle. You know, my mum was much more emotionally generous with them um, than she was with me. And then there was financial generosity and time and energy and attention and, and just generally making them feel important, which she never did to me. So I was grieving the mum I never had, grieving the mum that I, I could have had and then fucking raging, really, really angry. Her death was absolutely avoidable. It was a completely selfish death, um, which is just classic, my mum. So it was really complex. So I applied for grief counselling, which I had. And something seemed, I didn't think it would work. I didn't think it would make a difference, but something did seem to sort of, I don't know, settle down or shift, almost like, um, instead of having this raging fire of hate, just had a wee set of candles lit you know so it's still there some of the the negative feelings the anger and everything but it's not as bad Um, and I don't know if that's what grief counselling is supposed to do basically make the grief the negative parts of the grief not as bad but whoever it was I can't remember the lady's name she did a good job because it did make a difference and while I was having the grief counselling I was doing loads of self-reflection and navel gazing and because I'm a mum as well there's a lot of talk around what I could do differently as a mum because I didn't want to mirror my mum and in some parts I was, I had been. Um, so as I did a lot of work there as well, which also built my confidence and made life quieter and calmer because I invested in some of my more nurturing qualities and empathic qualities, which helped the kids and then made my relationship with the kids better. So 
I spent a lot of time with them in lockdown as well. Um, lots of time. Me and Sonny, my eldest, we must have walked 100 miles. We would go long, long, long walks. But we would go long walks around Glasgow and just chat. Just chat and chat and chat. Um, it was really nice. Um, so I did that. Then obviously I was writing my books, but I'm not going to go on about those. Um, but it does help to write stuff down. I did bits of periods of poetry. And then... Um, I don't know why, I just sort of opened up to friendships and I started making friends. I made some great friends off LinkedIn where I'm no longer am, but I've come away with three close friends from there, all women, which is new for me as well because women have abused me. Um, I was always fearful of them, paranoid of them, anxious around them, not so much competitive unless they triggered me. Um, and women often want to compete with me, um, but I think I've just been hanging around with the wrong women because I've got a banging set of pals now. I would probably ten. Ten friends that I know, if I turned up at their doorstep at three o'clock in the morning, they would be like, in you come, what are we doing? Do you want something to eat? Do you want to go out tomorrow? Stay as long as you like, I love you. How, well, how can I help you? As I can genuinely say that, that my sort of two hands full of female friends and maybe a couple of male ones as well are those kind of friends they're good friends so that that's a sign of recovery for me as well because I always struggled with friendships I would I was either too clingy or if the friends didn't really want me to be clingy it just always ended up in a big falling out um, and I regret that massively because I think there were women in my younger years who I could have actually had really good friendships with. I mean, I had a couple of really, really close friendships in my late teens and early 20s, but those women were also similar to me. Like there was there was borderline personality disorder in one, bipolar in one, um, quite chaotic, a lot of alcohol, a lot of marijuana when I was in my 20s, this is 20 years ago. Um, so it, maybe, maybe the friendships fell away because they should have done. But I think about stuff like this and I feel guilt about them, even though I probably didn't do anything wrong. Um, so recovery for me was very much a process of self-discovery, which sounds a bit but yeah, self-discovery. You know, being on my own a lot, a lot of solitude, um, a lot of creativity, a lot of activity, a lot of new, learning new things and revisiting things that I used to love doing that made me feel good. Um, and then I made a, a conscious decision to date, start dating again. I've ended up having probably the healthiest relationship of my whole life and um, which again is another sign of recovery I started looking for green flags instead of ignoring fucking red ones and I realized the type of I did a lot of work on the type of abuser I was attracting in both friends and intimate partners and I looked at why I was having these relationships with them and I was having them with them because they were like these people were like me they activated my impulse control and my risk-taking and my childhood wounds and my childhood need to belong and to have fun and do naughty things, do exciting things. And, um, oh my God, you're like me, you're like me. You know, we should hang out. No. So I thought I'm going to hang out, have a relationship with a guy that is not like me, who doesn't want to take risks and go crazy, do mad shit, take the day off work and get pissed or go out clubbing on a Monday night and, you know, or who isn't going to make me fawn after them and run after them and try and entertain them and 
um, do everything they want to make them happy. So then, then I feel happy and I feel safe. I, I thought that's the kind of guys that's been fucking me up. And even my friendships like that were fucking me up. Um, so I've ended up having, nearly, I think we're 19 months next week. Um, this week, 19 months on Wednesday. Uh, ups and downs, mainly caused by me, but a few by him. But that's what happens in normal relationships. Um, and that's just another sign of recovery. And uh, that's really how I did it. Um, and I have, like I say, it's not. it's been bumpy. It continues to be bumpy. But to get to a point that I'm at today, to get to a 7 out of 10, is a fucking miracle. Um, just sometimes I'm like, wow. Um, it's my, my lifestyle is amazing. Um, the future, the plans for the, the businesses and where I'm headed there is amazing. The kids are doing great. You know, they've got ambitions. They, they, they're intelligent, they're, they're popular, they're kind, funny. You know, it's great. My relationship with them is really good. Each of them individually. Um, and I like, I, apart from the fact that I'm a bloody reactor, I like myself. I do. I, I would, I would be friends with me. And I think that's the final sign of recovery is would you have a relationship with you? Would you be friends with you? And that's a, that's a deep one. And I think people should be asking that if they continue to have abusive relationships and abusive friendships is because some of it is our own responsibility. Some of it is us.